All right, if you have a Bible, take it out. John 11 and John 12 will be the verses that we're going to look at this morning. This is the second of three Sundays that we are taking to look at the story of Jesus and Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And so we're going to wrap up this story this morning. Each week in our study through the Gospel of John, we've talked about the thematic verse of John's Gospel. You'll find that in your Bible, John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. The Scripture says this, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's why John wrote this gospel. He says Jesus did many, many signs in his life. Most of them are not written in this book. Some of them you find in Matthew, some you find in Mark, some you find in Luke, but you find seven of them in the gospel of John. And we've talked about these seven signs multiple times. Jesus turns water to wine. He heals a nobleman's son. He heals a lame man, he feeds 5,000, he walks on the water, he heals a blind man, and here in John 11, he raises Lazarus from the dead. And the question that Jesus poses to Mary and Martha in this passage is a question that we ask ourselves each week, do you believe? And that question lines up with the overarching purpose of the Gospel of John. John says, these signs have been written, these seven signs, I've put them in the story so that you may believe not in a vague notion of God, not in some sort of higher power who's, who's benevolent and kind and wants to take care of you, but that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now let's talk about the immediate context of John 11. Roughly three months have passed since the Feast of Dedication where the Jews were seeking to stone Jesus and arrest Jesus. And so if you have your Bible, you can maybe just flip back a page. You can look at John chapter 10, verse 31. It says the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. You can jump down and look at verse 39. It says they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. This was Jesus in Jerusalem at the Feast of Dedication. The Jewish leaders were ready to arrest him, ready to execute him. But it wasn't the right time. Three months passed between the end of John 10 and the beginning of John 11. Three months is enough time for everybody to calm down a bit, but it's not a lot of time, and it's not enough time for everyone to forget what had just happened in Jerusalem. In fact, you'll remember in John 11 when Jesus says to the disciples, let's go to Bethany, which is basically a suburb of Jerusalem, Thomas pipes up and Thomas says, well, if we're going to go, let's go and we're going to die with Jesus there. He fully expects that Jesus is going to be put to death when they return to Jerusalem. At this point, Jesus is days from the cross. Not weeks, not months, but he is days from the cross. John 11, the first 16 verses, tell us how Jesus made it to Bethany. How did he get there? Why did he show up late? What's the backstory? Verse 17 to 37 in John 11 tell us this is what happened after Jesus got there. He talks with Martha, and then he talks with Mary, and he goes to the tomb, and he cries. Our passage, verse 38 to 57, chapter 12, 9 to 11, explain what happened after Jesus raised Lazarus 
from the dead. All of that brings us to the big idea of our passage this morning. It's the same big idea we've talked about every week in John chapter 11. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. That comes from John 11 verse 25 where Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. And just like John has seven signs, he also has seven I am statements. And we've talked about these. Seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. I'm the bread of life. I'm the light of the world. I'm the door, the good shepherd. Chapter 11, I'm the resurrection and the life. And in weeks to come, Jesus will say, I'm the way, the truth, the life, and I am the true vine. The question is, in John 11, when Jesus claims to be the resurrection and the life, Do you believe it? That's why John wrote the gospel. That's the question Jesus poses to Martha in this chapter. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Do you believe it? So let's read our passage and then we'll jump in. Starting in John 11, verse 38. It says, Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave. And a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands in feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. One of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied, that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but he went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now, the Passover of the Jews was at hand. And many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? 
Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. And then we're going to jump down and we're going to look at John 12, verse 9, 10, and 11. The text says that when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus, Lazarus to death as well because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. So let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. We pray this morning that you would give us wisdom, you would give us insight, you would give us understanding. Father, help us to see truth in this story and help us to apply it to our lives in a meaningful way. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. I imagine this week you've had a similar experience to one that I've had. You wake up each morning and you sort of shake off the sleep as best you can and you start to immediately think, what day is it? I don't know that I've known what day it is all week long. And the next thought that probably comes into your mind is, has all of this just been a bad dream? Did I just dream all of this last night? Uh, is there some sort of magic word I could say that would just make it all go away? Maybe I could just snap my fingers and, and everything would go back to normal. Or maybe you realize it's not a bad dream. There isn't going to be any going back to normal in the short run. And you say, man, if we could only turn back the clock a week or two or three, could we just go back to the way life used to be? Whether it's oil prices this week, whether it's uh, coronavirus this week, or quarantine, or kids at home, or whatever it may be, you've probably had that experience over the last couple of days. I just want you to understand, Mary and Martha were having one of those moments in John 11. It was the kind of thing where you wake up in the morning and you say to yourself, surely this is a bad dream. Surely this isn't really happening. Maybe we could just say the right thing to make everything go back. Or maybe they're praying to God saying, God, could we just go back to the way that it was? I can't imagine what they were feeling the days after they buried Lazarus. They had waited for Jesus to come. He didn't come. They put Lazarus in the tomb and one day went by and another day went by and a third day went by and the fourth day went by. And when Jesus showed up, in their minds it was too late. Too little, too late. But we know, because we've read the story and we've read it this morning, that it wasn't too late for Jesus. And when you look at what happens when Jesus actually shows up in Bethany and he does the unthinkable, he goes to the tomb of a man who had been dead four days and he calls him to walk out of the tomb there's some really important lessons for us to learn. There are a group of lessons we're going to talk about that relate to sin. And we're going to look at how did these people standing around in that moment, how did they respond to Jesus? For the most part, it was a sinful response, and there's lessons that we can learn. Then we're going to come back and we're going to talk about Jesus. What does this passage teach me about Jesus? So number one, what do these verses teach us about sin Three truths, and the first one is this, sin is always self-focused. It's always self-focused. Sin turns us in on ourselves. Think about these Jewish leaders. Think about what they witnessed or what they heard from eyewitnesses. What they heard is there was a man named Lazarus who died. They put him in the ground, in the tomb, in a cave. They sealed it up. 
He was dead and buried. Four days passed. Then Jesus of Nazareth Nazareth showed up, and he called the dead man to walk out of the tomb. What a remarkable miracle. And all the Jews can think about is self. All they can think about is self. Look at verse 45. John tells us, many believed. Verse 46, he says, some of them went to tattle, essentially. Verse 47, the chief priests and the Pharisees assembled the council. And I just want to stop here, and I want to make sure you know who some of the players are in this story. Let's talk about the chief priests and the Pharisees and the council, okay? First, the chief priests. Most of the chief priests were Sadducees. They were sort of one big extended family. They were theologically liberal. They didn't believe in miracles. They didn't believe in an afterlife. So they were certainly skeptical of the news coming out of Bethany. These chief priests, these Sadducees, essentially uh, had sold their soul to the Romans. They'd agreed to be puppets of Rome in exchange for quote-unquote control of the temple. So they prided themselves on being in control of the temple when everyone else sort of looked at them as sellouts. Those are the chief priests. Then we come to the Pharisees. The Pharisees were conservative theologically. They were Bible teachers. They were leaders in the local synagogue. They were highly respected in Jewish culture, and they did not get along with the Sadducees. In fact, these two groups hated each other. The Sadducees looked down their nose at the Pharisees as a bunch of uneducated, backwoods, Bible thumpers. And the Pharisees looked down their nose at the Sadducees as if they were a bunch of sellouts. Normally, they don't get along at all. John talks about the council. The council was made up of mostly Sadducees, a few Pharisees, and the council is the Jewish Sanhedrin. It's a 70-member court that had jurisdiction over Jerusalem and Judea. And again, this jurisdiction was under Rome, but they had some leeway to manage their own affairs. This is what John is telling us in verse 48. This group gets together, Pharisees, Sadducees, chief priests, the council meets. Verse 48, this is what they say. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. These people, this group, is the perfect foil to John the Baptist, who if you've read the Gospel of John, in John chapter 3, verse 30, John the Baptist said, he must increase, I must increase decrease. Jesus needs more of the limelight. I need less of the limelight. And he rejoiced in that. The council, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, this group of people, they take that concept and they flip it on its head. They say, if we don't do something, Jesus is going to increase. We are going to decrease. And while these two groups of people don't agree on anything, they agree on this one thing, that's an unacceptable outcome. In all of it, they're not focused on Jesus. They're not thinking rationally or honestly about the miracle. They're just completely focused on self. My guess is you know that this is true. And without being too personal, you know from personal experience that sin tends to turn you in on yourself. 
rather than thinking about anyone out there, rather than thinking about God, rather than thinking about how you can love God or love your neighbor, sin just brings your world very, very small to the size of your own existence, and you can't see three inches in front of your face. All you can think about is self. So, number one, sin is self-focused. Number two, sin is foolish. It's foolish, always. Look at verse 49 and 50. One of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. And I don't think I need to explain to you what Caiaphas is saying. Everyone is concerned that the Romans will come and take away what they have in the moment. And Caiaphas pipes up and Caiaphas says, look, you guys are fools. You're idiots. You don't know anything. It would be better that one person die. He doesn't name Jesus, but that's who he's talking about. It would be better that Jesus die Rather than Rome have to show up, everything spin out of control and Rome just brings down the hammer hard and we lose what's ours. So I just want you to think about Caiaphas' plan for a minute. Caiaphas' response to Jesus and what happened in Bethany is, here's the best outcome. Let's kill the man who brings people back from the dead. When you say it out loud and you think about it like that, you say, that doesn't sound like a great plan. Like, that sounds like you're attacking the the superhero in the movie and playing right into one of his greatest strengths. This guy brings people back from the dead four days after they're buried. What should we do about it? Well, let's kill him, the one who has the power to bring people back from the dead. It's foolishness, it's folly, and that's sin. Again, not to be too personal, but in your own life, I imagine you can look back in hindsight at seasons of sin or specific sins in your life, and you can say, man, that was really dumb. What was I doing? What was I thinking? We look back on those things and we say, in real time, it kind of made sense. I kind of thought it through and I talked myself into it and maybe I even had other people telling me what I should do or shouldn't do. But you look back in hindsight and you say, what a a foolish thing to do. That's sin. It's selfish. It's self-focused. It's foolish. And thirdly, you need to see that sin only ends with repentance. It only ends with repentance, right? The folly of sin tells us in our minds You're in a bad situation, and the way to get out of this situation is one more sin. You just need to do one more bad thing, and that's going to make all the trouble and all the mess go away. Look at verse 50. Caiaphas says in verse 50, one man should die. All we need to do is kill Jesus, and all of this goes away. But look at John 12 Verse 9 to 11, there's a a crowd. They find out that Jesus is around. They want to see Jesus and they want to see Lazarus because he raised him from the dead. So the chief priest, verse 10, make plans to put Lazarus to death as well. So we started off with, look, fellas, all we need to do is kill one guy. And just a few verses later, Caiaphas is saying, okay, we need to kill two guys. I know I said one. 
Now it's two, Jesus and Lazarus. That's where it stops. It won't go any further. I know I said we need to do one bad thing. We really need to do two bad things, and then all our problems go away. And you and I know that's not how it works. It wasn't going to stop with Jesus. It wasn't going to stop with Lazarus. It wasn't going to stop with the apostles in the book of Acts. They gather them together, and they say, look, you guys got to stop talking about Jesus. The whole world has gone after you. You got to be quiet. That's not how sin works. One more sin is never an off-ramp for sin in your life. The only off-ramp, the only exit ramp for sin in your life is repentance. It's just to stop in your tracks, to confess your sin to God, and to say, that's it. That's enough. Enough being self-focused, enough foolishness. I'm stopping, and I'm going to go in the opposite direction. So sin is selfish, self-focused. It's foolishness, and it only ends with repentance. So I just want to stop right there for a second. I want you to think about this story and what's happening. Lazarus has died. They put him in the ground. A couple of days go by. Jesus finally shows up in Bethany. He talks to Martha on the edge of town. He sends Martha to get Mary, and he talks with Mary. He asks Mary, where did you put him? And Mary takes Jesus essentially to the cemetery, to the tomb. He stands at that tomb and he weeps. He cries. He feels all the the kinds of emotions that we feel in a moment like that. He asks them to roll away the stone. They object saying, Jesus, the smell ain't going to be good. Don't do it. He says, roll it back. They roll it back. Jesus shouts after praying. He shouts towards the tomb. He tells Lazarus to come out. Lazarus walks out. Just look what happens in verse 43. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips, his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said, unbind him and let him go. And then in verse 45, the story moves, what feels like it moves in a a different direction, a, a new direction. And I don't know about you, But I look at that space between verse 44 and verse 45, and I just want to call a timeout and say, wait a minute, wait a minute, John. I got some questions. You've built up this drama, and you've told me about Jesus coming late on purpose because he loved these people. That doesn't make sense. And you told me about the conversation with Mary and Martha. You told me about Jesus calling this man out. He comes out. He's still wrapped up in the grave clothes. Jesus says to unbind him. There's some other things I'd like to know. I want to know when they took the the wrap off of his head, what did he say? I want to know when he walked out, did he actually smell? Was he like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who walked out of the fire? They didn't even smell like smoke? Or did he walk out raunchy? I want to know what Mary and Martha did. Who talked first? Who said what? I'd like to know, selfishly, which sister did he hug first? I'd like to know if that made the other sister mad. There's a hundred details around this moment that John has been building to. All of these questions I want to know. What happened? Who said what? What did they do next? Did they go straight home? Did they have a meeting? Did Jesus preach? I want to know what Thomas said. You remember Thomas thought they were going to Bethany to die. Let's go that we may die with him. What did Thomas say? What did John say? What did Peter say? You know Peter said something. Peter never had nothing to say. What did he say? 
John just moves on in the story. It's because this story isn't about Martha, and it's not about Mary. Shocker, it's not even about Lazarus. It's not about Thomas. It's not about the disciples. It's not even primarily about the Jews who responded so foolishly and selfishly to what Jesus had done. It's not about me, and it's not about you. It's a story about Jesus. And so the last question we'll ask is this. What do, what do these verses teach me about Jesus? Number one, Jesus' word is powerful. His word is powerful. Look at verse 43. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. That was not a request. It was not a suggestion. It was not an invitation of any kind. It was a divine imperative. It was a command. And when Jesus spoke it, even though no one had any idea what was about to happen and they all might have been skeptical, there was only one outcome, and the outcome is that Lazarus was going to walk out. It was not in question. It was not a suggestion. It was not a request. It was not an invitation. It was the powerful word of Jesus. Our friend D.A. Carson says this. I think it's helpful and humorous. He says, though it's not John's point, it's often been remarked that the authority of Jesus is so great that had he not specified Lazarus, all the tombs would have given up their dead to resurrection life. So he doesn't just say, come out. He says, Lazarus, come out. And the man who was dead, who had been in the tomb for four days, comes out. Jesus' word is powerful. If you've been tracking through the Gospel of John, you remember that in John 1, we open the Gospel with the idea that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and that everything that was made was made by and through the Word. In the beginning, it was the Word of God, the powerful Word of God that brought everything into existence out of absolutely nothing. And if you track through the rest of the New Testament, you know that in the end, when Jesus comes back and he has a final face-off with the Antichrist, he will destroy him, not with a sword, not with an army, not with lightning bolts, with the breath of his mouth, with the powerful word of his mouth. That's why John, in the book of Revelation, describes Jesus as coming back with a sharp, two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. It's not to be taken literally. It's John's way of reminding you his word is powerful. His word is powerful. This is important balance for what we've seen in John 11. If you look in your Bible, John 11 verse 33 says Jesus was deeply moved. He was greatly troubled. Verse 35 says Jesus wept. Verse 38 in our passage says he was deeply moved again. Jesus in these passages is described as the suffering servant who carries our sorrows. But then John turns around because he doesn't want us to have a one-dimensional picture of Jesus. So he describes him as this suffering servant. But then he turns around and he says, don't forget his power. And don't forget that when Jesus speaks, things happen. And in verse 43, he reminds us he's the creator. He calls the dead to life and in the end, He's the one that wins. 
with his word. His word is powerful. Secondly, what does it teach me about Jesus? Jesus was in control of his life and his death. He was in control of all of it. And I just want you to think about what's happening here in John 11 as we come to the end of what Jesus does at the cemetery, raising Lazarus from the dead. John tells us his enemies are ready to kill him. If there were any big, major holdouts, Caiaphas puts all that to rest and he says, fellas, this is what we need to do. One man needs to die so that something worse doesn't happen. They're ready to kill him. And you and I know that's why he came. He came to be killed. He came to die. And so as the reader, you get to this point and you say, let's, let's get on with it. Jesus came to die. They're ready to kill him. Let's put those two things together and let's resolve the story it's not the time yet. We saw earlier in John 10 that they picked up stones to stone him. Verse 39, John 10, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. The feast of dedication wasn't the time. There was absolutely no danger of Jesus dying at that point. He's in control of his life. He's in control of his death. He's not going to die at the feast of dedication. He's not going to die immediately after he raises Lazarus from the dead. They're ready to kill him. But it's not the Passover yet. And if you look in John 11, verse 55, John tells us that the Passover of Jews was at hand. It was getting close. That's John's way of saying, we're almost there. We're not there yet. But we're closer than we were at the Feast of Dedication. We're just a couple of days away. People are getting ready for the Passover. And we know from the Gospel of John, from the, the words of John the Baptist, Jesus of Nazareth is the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. And when John the Baptist says that, every Jewish mind goes back to the Passover. When the lambs were slaughtered and the blood was placed, smeared, wiped on the doorpost so that death could pass over God's people. That's the idea in their minds. And here we go. Jesus has come to die. His enemies are ready to kill him, but it's not the Passover yet. He'll die, not at the Feast of Dedication three months early, not right after he raises Lazarus a couple of days early. He'll die at the Passover. It's all under God's control. It's all under God's sovereignty. And you get another glimpse of this in verse 51, John eleven fifty-one. 51. Caiaphas lays out this murderous plot, and then John gives you a, an aside, a parenthetical, and he says, Caiaphas did not say this of his own accord, but being the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. John MacArthur explains it like this, God sovereignly turned his wicked, blasphemous words into truth. What Caiaphas meant for evil, God meant for good, for the greatest good. That brings us to the last truth. What is this passage? What do these verses teach me about Jesus? Number three, Jesus died for his people. And I know that word for is a small word. It doesn't seem like an important word, but it's loaded with theology. Verse 51, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. Verse 52, not only the nation only, not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. This idea of Jesus dying for his people reminds us that he took our place 
He died as our substitute. What he did was done on our behalf. He died for his people. Again, your mind can't help but go back to the Passover where the lambs were slaughtered so that death would pass over. Those lambs were slaughtered for the people. Your mind goes to the Day of Atonement when the animals were taken and an animal was slaughtered for the high priest and then another animal was slaughtered for the people. There was a substitution there wrapped up in that word for. Jesus came to die for his people. You look at this passage, John 11, and a few verses in John 12. This is a story about Jesus. First and foremost, it's about who he is. Yes, we learn some lessons about sin and how we respond, but first and foremost, John is telling us who Jesus is and what he came to accomplish on our behalf. It's a story about Jesus, and here's the beauty of it. This is the beauty of the gospel. Because Jesus died for his people, the story about Jesus includes us. It includes Mary. It includes Martha. It includes Lazarus. It includes Thomas and the disciples. It includes me. It includes you. It includes all those who believe that Jesus died for them. That's our hope. And that's our prayer for you this morning is that you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that he died for you. So I'm going to pray. Father, we are thankful for your word. Thank you for the gospel of John. Thank you for this story. What a remarkable story, Jesus and Lazarus. Father, we pray that we would see truth about sin that we would heed the warnings that we find in this passage about selfishness, about the, the, the crucial necessity, the absolute necessity of repentance. Father, that we would just be reminded how foolish sin is. But Father, above all that, before all that, we want to see truth about Jesus. We want to believe the truth about who he is. We want to believe that his word is powerful. Father, we want to believe that he died for his people, that he was in complete control of his life and his death, and when he was ready, at the perfect moment, he laid down his life for us. Father, we believe Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And Father, I pray for those in the room, the few in the room, and those who are watching this morning, that by your grace, we would have eyes to see the truth about Jesus and that we would believe.